together here in Christ because you've got to live somewhere. And so if you look around, you say, these are my people. But you chose these people, which is wonderful. The whole point of the letter of Galatians is that, church membership. As you turn there in Galatians 3.25, we find the circumstance or the occasion of this letter is there's troublers, Paul calls them in the church, who are saying you're not really a member. Talking to non-Jewish members of the church, Gentiles, and saying you're not actually full membership yet. You need to have these boundary markers or membership markers, which is why the letter deals with obscure topics like circumcision and what kind of foods you eat and what kind of days you celebrate. They're becoming a temptation to have two tiers of Christians in the church. And so we enter into this portion of the letter in Galatians 3.25, where Paul decides to answer them by bringing out the example of the unity we have in Christ through faith. And he says this, These distinctions do not matter anymore. Verse 25, Now that faith has come. Jesus Christ, the object of our faith. Now that he has come, these things are not primary anymore. For we are no longer under the guardians. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. And there is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ. You see the radicalness that Paul is pointing to the unity that they should have. And if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. I mean this, that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. And that will be the theme this morning. The patriarchy of God. The fathership of God. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman and born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, from which we cry, Abba, Father, the endearing term of sonship. So you are no longer slaves, but sons, and if sons, then heirs through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn it back to these weak and worthless elementary principles of the world 
Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. And there, as Paul continues, Paul's threat, and of course the whole point of the letter emphasizing the truth of the gospel, that there is one true gospel, is that if this true gospel is compromised to not be true anymore, the importance of it is the difference between success and vanity. Paul concludes, if you don't get this, if you do not understand what I'm saying to you, everything I did was in vain. I traveled this Greek world, Roman world, planting churches. I went through the province of Galatia, planted a few there. And if you are taken in by this false teaching, everything I did was pointless. That you have believed a false gospel, you have no salvation, you have no Christ, but you have a really awesome calendar. Days and months and seasons and years. This was the temptation. The troublers were coming into the church and saying, yes, you might have Christ and you might be a Christian now, but now you need to get yourself organized. Now you need to add a little bit more to this gospel. And one particular incident here is this calendar situation of actually taking on, if not a Jewish calendar of some sort with circumcision and the dietary laws, that they need to become more Jewish, that they need to change their way of life. And Paul is saying, these people who speak about the law, they know not what they talk of. They don't know about the law. They're giving you portions of the law to obey, but they do not understand that the whole law comes together as a package. So that if you were to break one portion of the law, it doesn't matter how many bar mitzvahs you hold or how clean you eat. It doesn't matter what kind of days you celebrate. If you have eyes full of adultery, if you lust and envy, if you hate and have pride, you've broken the law. And nothing else matters anymore. There's nothing but condemnation. And so Paul is saying, if this is how you approach the gospel, you have no gospel. If this is how you approach Christ, you have no Christ. Now, the irony of all this is the solution to all this conflict and consternation in the church is a letter that is purely a matter of conflict and consternation. Paul is verbally fighting with his church. He is going out of his way to pick a fight with them, to be controversial with them. That is to say, a proverb or an adage that people use that the solution lies within the problem. That is, the disunity and the conflict in the church is the problem. And the solution, more conflict. Because as Christians, we aim for true unity out of love. That if there is conflict, then we have only one recourse for true unity. To continue to speak the truth out of love. Paul refuses to relativize the gospel, to make it squishy and malleable like water that fits in every vase. No. The gospel is true. And all things must conform to it. Jesus Christ is the stumbling stone. He will not be moved, but we will. He is the rock of offense. You must trip over him. And so Paul is pushing them to say, no, we need truth. That the actual solution to these problems is in the problem itself. Now, it's not, it's not a, uh, I don't think a secret that many of us know there's a, there's a fair bit of engineers in this church. So when I tell you last night at the congregational dinner that I was talking with an engineer, you won't even know who it was. You could not possibly even guess. But I was. 
Um, and in that conversation, it, we had a little conversation about uh, something like this, how the solution is actually inside of the problem. Uh, we're speaking about how uh, the one, one particular job of uh, this engineer was to spend many, many months looking at one particular industrial component to a whole system for this one reason, to find a, a better efficiency and better durability. And so they will use patents and they will use uh, their computer software and they will look at this one, let's say a cog in a machine. And by looking, the, the problem is this cog in a machine, it's too weak, it's not efficient, it's not, it's not doing as well as it could. And that's the problem. But where's the solution? Inside the problem. That there has to be intense focus on this one cog. What is it made of? Titanium and steel. What's its circumference, diameter? How can we make it stronger? How can we make it more efficient? And so a good fraction of someone's whole career right there will be, there's a problem, and inside this problem, there is a solution. I need to find it. Right? Now, I don't have those problems because I was the kid in school during algebra class that said, teacher, don't you... I'm sorry, I have to apologize to my teachers, especially today, actually. I said, teacher, when am I ever going to use this in real life? <laughs> oh, those students, I'm sorry, I have to apologize. Um, especially today, because today is that day. I'm going to use algebra today. The first time in my life. I have to go back to my teacher and say, I'm sorry, and you know what, thank you for teaching me algebra. I could use it as a sermon illustration, Finally. Because students who ask those questions don't end up being engineers, I'll just tell you that. <laughs> um, but it is like algebra again. I don't even remember her name, but I have to thank her for this. Where algebra is a set of values set against another set of values with an equal sign. Do you remember these problems? There's an X and a Y. There's your problem. Where's your solution? It's in the problem. The solution is inside that problem. It's only a problem because you don't know enough about the equation yet. What is the X? What is the Y? It's there. Intense focus, intense meditation upon the truth, and it emerges. See, I learned. Well, that really is what Paul is saying here. There's a problem in their understanding of the gospel, and inside that problem is the solution. Particularly here, it's impossible to understand what Paul is saying in this passage. To not first understand that the problem here is the patriarchy. Patriarchy means father rule. And that is the problem. And what Paul will say is, that is also the solution. It's impossible to understand what Paul is really saying here without understanding this problem. See, in the ancient world, men ruled by inheritance and passed on that inheritance by sons. Pater familias was a whole Roman civil code in which the supreme head of the home, the home was looked at as there's a difference actually between having a family and having a household particularly in ancient Rome. A slave could have a family, but a free, only a free man could have a household. Voting rights, property, and freedom. You can have a wife and children, but you cannot have a household in the 
paterfamilias. See, the father, the oldest in the household, had legally the ability to exercise autocratic authority over everyone in the family, wives and children alike. There was some strength to this, of course. It provided a very strong structure and honor to society. Rome was a democracy in many ways, built on honor and accountability, extreme accountability. Uh, There was a shame. We don't have a culture of shame at all. Shame is gone in our culture, but also is the patriarch in many ways. But there are many things as well that were bad about this. It was abusive and uh, neglectful and obviously had a tendency toward evil and oppression. But you see, this is exactly what Paul is talking about in the passage. He says, For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. He doesn't say you're all daughters of God through faith. But he is speaking to women just as much as men. There's a mindset to what he's saying. That there is an honor and a dignity to Christ. An inheritance of a heavenly home that is making all of us sons of this great kingdom. A concept completely foreign to anyone in that world. That yes, there is no difference whether you are a slave or free, you are a son. Whether you are a male or female, you are a son. That is, you have all the rights and privileges of being united to Christ. Through faith, it says, you're all sons of God. Through faith, that is, our intellect, our volition, and all of our affections. Everything we know and believe, and we find to be true in this world, and of Christ our Lord, and everything we want to be true. Everything in our volitions, that's what faith also is. Faith is a matter of the heart with desire, not just intelligence and information. It starts there. You have to first, how Paul says in Romans 10, will they believe unless they have not heard? And how will they not hear unless someone goes? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? You need to know intellect, the gospel, but it doesn't only start and end there. Then that affects your volition, your desire. Oh, I want it to be true. I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord. There is a desire in my heart that I might have him. Oh, that I could have Christ be with me. And then follows the affections that he responds in that faith. And he fills your heart. And he gives you his spirit. And you cry out not mother Abba Father. That there is a patriarchal glory to the gospel in salvation. The power of this gospel is that God will attend to this particular promise. That is, our will and desire, we normally cannot change things by our desire. You normally, just by wanting to not be a slave, can make yourself free. You normally, just by being a woman and wanting to be a man, can make yourself a man. But in the gospel, God has given a promise through faith that if you, in this one instant, like this one moment in history, your will has tremendous power because God has granted a way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you want this, if you would just want it, to want to have God to be your God, to want to have all the inheritance rights as a son of God, no matter how enslaved and bound you are by the world and your sins, that if you wanted to be free, if you just wanted to not be a slave, in Christ, that very volitional desire, which the scripture calls faith, 
is yours. He actually for this moment will let your desires create reality. For Christ has made a way. He has given himself. And it is all a matter of being saved honestly by the patriarchy. God created the patriarchy. That is a father rule. As the opening portions of Genesis were told that God created the man first. And as Paul interprets this in 1 Timothy 2, that he was given kingship and that he was given prophetic authority. We're told that because in Genesis 2.16, God commanded, the scripture says, commanded the man, do not eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then in Genesis 2, 18, two verses later, two verses later, God says it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper. And then woman. That is, before there was woman, there was man. And in that moment, man was given the word. And in that word was a command, which was a law binding for the reality of human civilization. And that law was also a word from God, therefore was prophetic and binding upon the society. Then, of course, we know the fall and corruption. And then in the next chapter, we're told that God explains what really happened. And this is what we all know too well. Then in Genesis 3.16, after the fall and all the sin and corruption entered into the world, God said to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It's not a good desire. Teshuka in the Hebrew there is a type of desire that the next chapter is likened to an animal ready to pounce for its prey. I just described someone's marriage. This is the world we live in. The battle the disunity of the genders, sexes, hostility because of sin. Hostility because the patriarchy that didn't make it past the first two chapters of the Bible is fallen. And it's true. Now, there's no need for me to try to make an argument. I'm not a sociologist, but most would say that the idea of even a matriarchy generally, naturally in the world is non-existent, except by design. The problem is with the patriarchy. Just by natural law, and this will be a natural law point, that God has made men uh, stronger and larger. They're able to, and this is all relevant to the gospel to see what Paul is saying, able to physically exert their will more easily in the world. No other reason except God just made it that way. Biologically, men are bigger and stronger. That is, and here's the point, all the evils and abuses and wrongs in the world are more principally, more primarily man's fault. For that is, all the evil, abuse, violence, and wars fall at the feet of men because if all the women in the world wanted to go to war and all the men in the world didn't want to go to war, we wouldn't go to war. But if all the men in the world want to go to war and all the women in the world didn't want to, We'd still go to war. 
There's a particular ability given to men to exert their will in the world. There's a disproportion reality of nature. Patriarchy is natural. It just happens. This was observed by the feminist movement of the previous century to be a problem, which it is, because of the sinful nature of the human heart. And so here's a story of an unholy worship service. I find this in The Anti-Mary Exposed by a book written by Cary Gress. This problem that the Lord describes as an opposition of the sexes, that your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. He's just stronger. A woman named Kate Millett, you might have heard, was a very influential feminist in the previous century, invited her sister, Mallory Millett, uh, to a meeting in 1969 in Greenwich, New York City. And this was the beginning of the second wave of feminism. And see, Mallory, her sister, actually is nothing to do with the feminist movement that her sister had as the years progressed. But in the story, she gives this testimony of what she saw there and really what was the beginning of this movement in feminism. She described the meeting of um, her sister, Kate's 12 uh, closest friends in this uh, portion in New York City in the Greenwich Village in which they all met together and had a meeting and it was not like a normal meeting. It was almost like a worship service. They had a, a liturgy or a litany rather of an antiphonal reader response, things that you do in churches where you say a particular truth and then the church responds in a type of robust answer to that truth and that happens most often in traditional worship services and this is what the chairwoman said to explain where we are, particularly as a society, and the remarkable prophetic power that was behind this meeting. The question was, why are we here today? The chairwoman asked. They responded, the group, to make revolution, they answered. What kind of revolution, she replied. A cultural revolution, they chanted. And how do we make this cultural revolution, they demanded. By destroying the American family, they answered. And how do we destroy the American family? By destroying the American patriarch, they cried exuberantly. And how do we destroy the American patriarch, she probed. By taking away his power, they respond. And how do we do that? By destroying monogamy, they shouted. And how can we destroy monogamy? By producing promiscuity, eroticism, prostitution, abortion, and homosexuality, they responded. Doesn't that sound familiar? Kind of like they did everything they wanted to do? Desire will be for your husband. This is the world we live in. This is the fallenness of the human nature. But with these women in that meeting, if we could be there with them that many years ago, pull up a seat and say, you're right. The problem is the patriarchy. Now hear the gospel, you foolish women. Matthew, Romans 
Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, that is, because of this reality that Adam truly was our father, and that in his position as being our father, we have all died and been corrupted with him. We are twisted and broken and we hate one another, and we divide one another, and we look for gender differences and race differences. We look for economic differences and proclivity differences. What kind of eyes you have, what kind of hair you have. We're like little children in the playground that need to be brought to school and brought to wear a uniform. That's why they bring uniforms into prisons and schools. So they're less likely to hate each other. That all the inmates wear orange. And all the little kids in a prep school dress nice with a skirt and a dress and some shoes and a shirt that's tucked in. Unity by uniformity. That without that, without what the gospel gives, there is nothing here for us to have unity as a church or as a civilization. We agree, of course, with these Feminist realities that the world is broken. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 11 says, Woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For woman came from man, yet man was born for woman. The solution to the problem is inside the problem. As Paul presents the gospel, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, not his daughter, his son, born of a woman. The beautiful gospel in that is that God set forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us under the law that we might receive, we all might receive adoption as sons. Do you see how he's merged everything? Do you see what that prophecy, that gospel is, that it's all wrapped up together, that God therefore sent forth his son to be born of a woman that we might receive? That we might receive all of this, the adoption as sons through faith. That is the point of the whole gospel. The thing that Paul has been driving and driving with the Galatians is the gospel is not of works. It is not of effort. It is not of energy. It is not of exertion. It is actually very unmasculine. Faith in this regard is very unmasculine. That's the whole point of the prophecy of circumcision. The whole point of why men, only men in the Old Testament were circumcised. Why was the covenant only given to men? Because the law was given until the promised seed for which it was written. It was meant to prophesy that there will be a child born. He will be a man. Circumcise your men. He is of a seed that will come. The whole point of men, particularly the way God has made it, biologically having a potentiality to work. To exert physical force. That is, run faster, jump higher, swim further. And without being extremely too graphic, understand what Paul is saying in this passage. The very produce, production of generation is an active, passive relationship. The man is active and the woman is receptive. And if you need any more explanation... The elders will be here after the service. In the front. <laughs> but this is how God has made it. It is, it is men who are active and women are receptive. And as a result of that, life emerges in this world that God has made. 
but realize this beautiful gospel. The circumcision was for the lineage of the Jews all the way down to Christ. That is, that Isaac, Abraham, which means father of many, patriarchal, to his whole household, was to circumcise every man in his household. And then in Matthew, we're given the genealogy down to Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David and Solomon and Uriah, all the way down to Joseph, Jesus' father. And then what happened? No procreation. A virgin birth. Do you see the gospel in that? That right here, right now, that God would send forth his son, born of a woman. But how? With not one ounce of man. God saved the world through a woman. By a man. So that they would get the gospel. It is not a matter of man's power and exertion. His ability and his work. It is not a matter of work. It is a matter of faith. It is not a matter of Joseph. It is a matter of Eve receiving. Which is what faith is. Faith is an act of receiving Christ and all his benefits. Of course, he had to be virgin born. For what would Joseph think that he is? That he produced the Savior? No. But God, here's the act, sent forth his son. That we, the feminine, receive it by faith. Are adopted as sons of God. The solution to the problem of this corrupt, wicked patriarchy. Of fallen men oppressing is the patriarchy that God himself installed a new patriarchy in the world that he introduces himself and that he commands his church to go out and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in all the earth that he is making a new world and now we have uniformity that we all Put on Christ. That we all with peace, love, hope, and joy. Putrefy and mortify all of our sinful cravings. And give ourselves to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. To walk like Christ and smell like Christ. To dress like Christ. To be unified with Christ. Yet all of our beauty and gender differences remain. That all of this unity is found in the gospel. That Jesus Christ has united us. And put in us a spirit in which we cry, Abba, Father. For you are all sons, he says in closing. That he has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts. Aramaic and Greek, Jew and Hebrew. Do you see how he's uniting? Ava, Pater. If you're a Jew, call him Ava. If you're a Greek, call him Pater. But he's only one father. Dear Father, help us to be united. We particularly pray... For this reason, we bow our knees, Lord, before you, our Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Lord, we ask that you would be our great patriarch. We ask that you would give us all the inheritances of your firstborn son. We ask, Lord, to have the wisdom to not give in to the deceptive and 
is historically the case, intentional divisions of this world. We are not ignorant of Satan's schemes, Lord. May you remember our prayer now that you would always keep us as a church united in the truth and united in Christ. And Father, we ask that you would give us a potency that only comes from the Spirit, that we would be effective in preaching this gospel and bringing many sons to glory. So Lord, please do this now. Bring your fatherly rule on this world, for we have been able to call you our Father. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand if you're able? <clears throat>